Welcome to Stewart Observatory on this beautiful night in Tucson, Arizona. And we welcome those of you who are watching this podcast either at iTunes U or streaming on the World Wide Web from www.as.arizona.edu. Um, it's a beautiful night, so the telescope will be open this evening after, after our lecture. Also, our speakers tonight are authors, and their, their book is for sale in the main lobby. So at the conclusion of the lecture, we will have a book signing. And you know me, when we have book signings, I always provide refreshments. So you are all welcome to the main lobby for punch and cookies, as well as getting a chance to peruse the book and maybe have them sign it if you purchase it. And the telescope will be open. What? Yes, at a discount. OK. Now, um, one other thing I'd like to, oh, yes, if there are students here for an assignment, I am the person who will stamp your assignments down here at this table at the end of the question and answer period. Also, I wanted to bring something to your attention. On Arizona Public Media, Channel 6, this Sunday, October the 1st, at 6.30 p.m., they will air a special on 100 years of space exploration here at the University of Arizona. Now, what they've done is they've taken five different documentaries there's a documentary on OSIRIS-REx, two on the Mars Phoenix mission, one called Desert Moon, which tells the story of Gerard Kuiper, and then Focusing the Universe, which tells the story of Andrew Ellicott Douglas and the Stewart Observatory. I believe they're showing excerpts of these on the television broadcast, but they also have all five documentaries available for streaming at their website. I will post on the Stewart Observatory web page where we have the, the schedule. I'll post the link so that you can watch all of the documentaries in their entirety, should you wish. But that television show will be 6.30 this Sunday night. Channel 6, Arizona Public Media, KUAT. All right, so without further ado, I, oh, anyone interested in Friends of Stewart Observatory, Guy Jett is up there to tell you about the organization should you wish to know. Without further ado, then, I'd like to introduce our special guests tonight. Uh, Alfred McEwen is a professor at the Department of Planetary Science, our sister department. It's also known as the Lunar and Planetary Laboratory, founded by Gerard Kuiper. Um, he is also the principal investigator of the high-rise experiment on the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter Mission. Got that right. Um, he received his bachelor's degree from Northern Arizona University in geology. And then he got, and we will forgive him for this, his PhD from Arizona State University in planetary geology. Ari Espinoza, meanwhile, is a graduate of the University of Arizona in East Asian Studies. That's right. So they are here to tell you about their book and about the Mars high-rise uh, camera that has been orbiting Mars. So I'll turn it over to Ari to begin with. All right, thank you. Good evening, everybody. I want to thank you very much for being here. We're very, very privileged to talk to everybody. You know, I've been doing this for 10 years, taking being able to participate in talking about Mars and high-rise, and it never gets old, never does. Mainly because people ask very, very good questions. 
Uh, I just recently came back from Wales and from Cornwall. I did some, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just recently came back from Wales and from Cornwall, and I did some high-rise presentations. And I think the best question I got was from a little boy who was very serious, and he asked me, when is Mars going to explode? <laughs> well, I don't know, maybe the InSight mission might help with that or something like that, but I think Mars will be around for quite a long time. I just wanted to briefly talk a little bit about um, the book that we just did. It's called Mars, the Pristine Beauty of the Red Planet. It had a very interesting genesis. A few years ago, a French publisher said they wanted to do a high-rise book of these wonderful images, and we said, fantastic. They said they wanted to do them in color. We said, even better. So we came up with 400 images. We wrote captions for them. And then they changed their mind. They said, we're going to do a black and white book, actually, and uh, we're going to write our own captions. Well, we were going to complain because they were using our images, and the book they produced was very, very, very nice. It was very beautiful. But I had all of these captions and all of these beautiful color images, and I, about a year and a half uh, went by or so, and I said to Alfred and to uh, Candace Hansen, who's the uh, deputy investigator for High Rise, I think we need to do something. Let's try to do something. Well, long story short is we managed to do something. We managed with the U of A Press to produce the most beautiful Mars book ever. And I think in many respects, it is a very good photographic jumping point for what we have learned about Mars in the past 10 years. Mars is not the planet that we thought it was in many respects. And our camera, which is the best camera that's ever been sent to another planet, has been able to allow us to see the surface, the varied surface of Mars, at extremely high resolution. And so we're hoping that our book is your gateway into exploring more about Mars. And what I want to do actually right now is turn it over to High Rise Principal Investigator Alvin McEwen, who will give you more details. Thank you. <coughs> okay, can you hear me okay? All right. So I have too many slides, but I'm going to go through these quickly because I like to allow lots of time for questions because I know you guys ask good questions. Yeah, that would be good. Okay, so here's a quick summary of the MRO mission. We launched in 2005, we cruised to Mars, we had orbit insertion, we did aerobraking where we dipped into the atmosphere repeatedly, and then our primary mission was supposed to just go until December 2010, but we've kept going ever since. Here's a picture of the telescope being uh, mounted on the spacecraft, people for scale. And it's about the size of a good backyard telescope. Some of you may have bigger telescopes. But it is the biggest telescope ever sent to another planet. The Mirror Lab, they look at this and scoff, but they don't get to send theirs to other planets. <laughs> <laughs> Here it is in the thermal vacuum chamber. Uh, this cover on it says, remove before launch. <laughs> Fortunately, they did. <laughs> there it is, getting hoisted up. There's launch. Atlas, that's an Atlas V, 401, same vehicle that launched OSIRIS-REx recently, except they had a, a one booster on it, I think. So then we had Mars orbit insertion in March 2006. We had an event over in, in LPL, and uh, then Representative Gabby Giffords attended. So uh, the biggest challenge of, of high rise is speed. So we are whizzing over the surface at 3.2 kilometers per second, 7,000 miles per hour to image the surface at just 30 centimeters, about a foot per, per pixel. 
So that means we have a very short exposure time. And if you want to scale this down, that's like imaging coarse sand grains on the road while driving at 125 miles per hour. <laughs> so the, the camera is specially designed to, to be able to image very rapidly. Um, so we have uh, 10 CCD detectors across the full swath width in you know, a broad panchromatic bandpass. And we have an extra four in the middle that give us three color coverage in a center stripe. So this is what the full image looks like with the color just down the middle. And then a little sample of this blown up to show you the full resolution. So these are enormous images, roughly gigapixel images. Uh, I always like showing an image acquired today or yesterday at talks just to let you know we're still taking pictures. So here's one that we just acquired. And this is uh, a valley here where the material has flowed down and made a deposit with a, a rim on it, like a moraine. And from radar observations, we've detected ice in some of these. So this is a glacier. This is a glacier on Mars. Oops. So. So I'm going to show you some greatest hits. Um, when we first arrived at Mars, just by coincidence, the, the uh, Opportunity rover had just arrived at Victoria Crater. Uh, you can barely see it right there. Here it is blown up. And you can see the shadow of this uh, uh, mass cam here. And this was really excited when we first got this, one of our first full resolution images. Why is it to keep doing that? So, how many of you seen the new Star Trek Discovery TV show, yeah? Well, in their introduction, they show this scenery that looked strangely familiar to us. I uh, see that. I must be doing something here. <laughs> um, that's this. They inverted it. They switched the brightnesses back and forth, but that's our image there that they're using in their introduction to the new Star Trek. So uh, something else you may remember is Mars Pathfinder. Uh, Peter Smith built the camera for that one. And uh, uh, from the view from Pathfinder, you could see this rock yogi. And there's a little Sojourner rover next to it at that time. So we can see that with high rise. <laughs> uh, you may get tired of these slides. So also, uh, the Phoenix mission was launched like two years uh, after Emero was launched. Peter Smith, PI of that. And they had already picked out their landing site. And I used to joke, oh, we're going to see boulders all over your landing site. <laughs> so we took the pictures. And sure enough, there are scary boulders. These are bigger than the landers. If you land on one of them, the mission's over. So I sent Peter this happy Halloween card because it was around Halloween. But then just a few months later, we found much better landing sites at the, sa at the right latitude for their mission and so forth. And they, they landed somewhere near here. We also did something for the first time in the Phoenix mission, which was to image uh, the, the uh, Phoenix lander on the parachute. There it is right there. That's the parachute with the band gap uh, pointed upwards. You can even see the cords. And there's Phoenix inside there. And, uh, it looks like it's landing in this crater, but that's an illusion. It's actually a very bleak image, and it's 20 kilometers in front of this crater. We also caught the heat shield. That was in free flight. <laughs> they had released that, and it was still floating towards the ground. Here it is right after landing. 
So then we had to do it again for uh, Curiosity rover, Mars Science Laboratory. And this time we got, uh, we were closer, and it's a bigger parachute. So we got uh, this, this image of, of the parachute and the, the capsule. Here it is afterwards. In fact, most, most of what was sent to Mars with the MSL mission crashed. But the 10% the that didn't crash is the rover that was gently set down and has been exploring ever since. Uh, one of the cool things we saw is that this uh, backshell parachute, it moved. After it landed, you know, weeks later it moved. It shifted, we think, in the wind blowing around. And uh, that, that was interesting because uh, we saw the, the Viking Lander 2 parachute, which surprised us. It's been there 40 years. It should be all dust covered. So we think maybe it also uh, got cleared off by blowing around the west wind. Uh, there was also some, some failed past landing attempts that uh, we've looked for. One that we uh, almost certainly found was that of the Beagle 2 mission. This was Europe's first attempt to land at Mars. And they didn't know what happened. It was on Christmas, bad Christmas. Uh, <laughs> they, they released it from the mother spacecraft and never heard from it again. But uh, we, we finally spotted something. and. The way that we found this actually was that we have a, a, a public website where anyone, any one of you can enter target suggestions. And um, a person who had, had worked on the Beagle 2 mission but was retired entered a target and said, hey, there's a little gap that you didn't cover within the, the area where you searched. Uh, take an image here. We took it and he said, hey, I think I found it. And then we took a color image and, and confirmed and so forth. We actually found it, and it's because of someone, a public uh, suggestion that led to it. Uh, then uh, Europe tried again recently with the Schiaparelli lander in 2016, and it crashed. <laughs> There's the crash site and pieces of it. Um, but it was a demonstration lander, and they claim they learned a lot from it, and they'll do better next time. So. So high-rise can acquire stereo images. We point the spacecraft to the side, take two images, and we produce digital train models. With that, we can produce these uh, oblique views. This is with no vertical exaggeration. There's lots of places on Mars that are like this with very steep slopes and very rugged. We don't land on these sites, so you're not used to seeing this type of train. And uh, we'll just run through a few, a few pictures. Uh, I'd love to, sh this book was painful because I wanted to show you my 50,000 uh, favorite images, but with 200 and something images already, we're worried about hernias, so it's probably just as well we cut it off. But this mound in Ganges Kasman looks, looks pretty good looking straight down on it. Here's a little piece of it blown up at full resolution. Uh, yeah, this one goes back a ways, but um, do, you, do you recognize that name, Ganges? Uh, there's lots of names that are they're from different languages around the world, and often they, uh, for, for river channels, they're all named Mars in different languages. But for, for this feature, it's a place. It's, it's, it's a place or a mythology or something like that. Yeah. It, oh, of course. <laughs> But they, yeah, 
Yeah, I, I think they would have used that for a river on Mars, but okay. Um, but we have some, we, we produced a digital train model of this, and, uh, and uh, a, an enthusiast, amateur, made this uh, view from our digital train model of what this looks like. And this is, again, with no vertical exaggeration. This is really what it would look like <laughs> if you were on the floor of the chasm looking up at it. And uh, I was in Hawaii recently and saw this uh, <laughs> mural of the uh, mountains in Hawaii. So looks sim similar, but these are totally different landscapes and histories. Okay. Very strange. Um, this is one of my favorite images because uh, this was framed and put up in, in one of the buildings at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And one day I was trying to find a meeting in that building. It's kind of a maze. I asked for directions and was told, you know, turn left by the painting. <laughs> that made my day. Um, <coughs> Here's another cool image. This is a sublacustrin fan, we think, that uh, there's lots of deltas that form fans that form at the edge of former bodies of water. This one formed at the bottom, much like in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, here's just a cool image we got fairly recently showing bedrock layers with different colors and compositions. Here are some giant tree ferns. Actually, these are inverted river channels. So these were river channels, but then the material got indurated, maybe from gravels, maybe from salts. And then the wind eroded around the surrounding trains, and now these stand are high-standing features. Uh, we've seen columnar joining, like uh, Devil's Post Pile and so forth at national parks. Here's a really interesting feature. Uh, these are in, in uh, Athabasca Valley, so that's named after a place in Canada. Um, and these are like little volcanic eruptions that we think uh, are related to water that formed as the lava was draining away, so they have these interesting uh, form. Here's a little zoom sequence so that um, to give you a sense of scale at high rise. Um, and this is from a, a blog. But this is a context imager. This is 30 kilometer wide field of view that also flies at MRO, and it's designed to provide more regional context to the other observations. But I have no idea what's going on here. Um, so look at there, and then we'll zoom in to here. We'll zoom in again to a piece of it here, and zoom in again here. And you can now see the full resolution of, of the high-rise image. And see these spirals here? What do you think those are? These are interpreted to be lava coils, and you can see these in, in Hawaii. They're not this neat, but when two plates are shearing together with, with lava in between, it creates these, these spirals. And uh, this is one of the things, this is cool because we, we acquired this image in February 2008, but these features were not discovered in 2011, and it was an undergraduate student at ASU who discovered it. <laughs> All right, here's some beautiful uh, man, bedrock layers in Becquerel Crater here. 
some more layers. Uh, this is one that's in the book. I, I always like this one because it's like abstract cubism or something. Uh, this is like a Jackson Pollock here. These are jumbo pieces of layered bedrock, uh, probably from a big avalanche landslide. Here's yet another zoom sequence, but all in one slide. And this shows you the close-up on another uh, glacial-like flow feature. Actually, we can just call them glaciers now. We, we know there's ice in them, so they're glaciers. Uh, OK, we, we image the elephant. Um, <laughs> this is actually the margin of inflated lava flow. And that's a fortuitous uh, impact crater there. And then there's some Aeolian sand dunes that give the skin texture. Just so one of the cool things we've learned and, and we're surprised by is, is the present-day activity on Mars. It's much more active than we expected, and MRO proved to be better at, at detecting this activity than we thought. One category are new impact craters. We've now detected it should be over 700 now new impact sites. That's mean by new, I mean we have before and after images. It wasn't there, then it's there. So we have, you know, these are really new. These are happening now at a very high rate. These happen at Earth, but we don't, at this size, we don't even know it because they explode in the upper atmosphere and, and we, we don't detect anything down here. Here's uh, one of these, a close-up showing the details of the new crater. Now a subset of these are especially interesting because they expose this bright white material and where it's big enough, the spectrometer on MRO says, yes, it's water ice. We could also watch these sublimate over time and from that show that this is almost pure water ice that's less than a meter from the surface. So this is, and this is in the mid-latitude. It's not at the poles. It's, it's a little north of where we are here right now. 39 north is the, the lowest latitude we've seen this. So this is really an important uh, resource for any future human explorers on Mars. Uh, slope streaks, these are little dust avalanches all over the slope. Uh, wind blows on Mars, we see dust devils. This one is uh, especially cool. This is the dust here, and this is the shadow of that dust devil moving over the surface. We saw an even bigger one. Uh, this is just the base of it. We didn't quite get the whole thing in our field of view, but the context camera can did. And from that, we could, from the shadow, we can reconstruct how tall it is. And it's about 20 kilometers high. So here's Mount Everest for scale. <laughs> um, so this looks very impressive. But if this does not blow over your habitat, like in the movie The Martian, the air is so thin, you know, it looks impressive, but it would not destroy your city. Uh, this thing is, uh, this is about a kilometer. So this is a couple hundred meters. All right, streaming sand dunes, and I, I need to put together an animated GIF because these things are really moving fast. These things are active today, migrating. We, we didn't know if dunes were active on Mars prior to MRO. We've been monitoring this. This is a little sequence showing them moving. They're moving all over the place. They're very active uh, sand dunes on Mars. Here's an impact crater in the North Polar Layer deposit with a wind streak. So lots of things going on there. 
Uh, something else we saw, very interesting, is in the North Polar region, there are these very steep edges of the layer deposits. This is the top of the ice cap. These are layers of ice here with varying amounts of dust and some frost on top. And every spring, for a short period of time, when the sun first hits these steep slopes, these avalanches form. And this is like the dust cloud or dust and frost cloud of, of that hasn't settled yet. So we basically caught this avalanche. We've seen dozens of these now. So uh, gullies is another topic of great interest. When these were first discovered, it was thought that this was evidence for water on Mars today. Uh, but what we found is that these are actively forming today. It wasn't just a recent past climate. And this one shows a, a particularly nice example where you can see the, the channel changing in its shape and a new, new fan here, a new channel. Looking at these numbers here, that's about a Mars year apart, so about two years. I, this, our image numbers are orbit number and latitude, basically. So uh, I'll get to that, okay? This is, of course, there's, we're not seeing water here. We're seeing a, a slope with rocky materials and loose material, maybe sand. Um, Here's another one that changed. These are a different class of features called linear gullies. You can see these pits in those form between the two images, maybe a couple Mars years apart. We've been at Mars for five Mars years, which is roughly 11 Earth years now. Okay, so how, how do these form? It was thought to be water, um, and but how can that be today? It's so dry there. <coughs> Water's extremely unstable. It hasn't rained in a billion years. There can't be water coming out of the ground, can there? So it was thought that this was from a past climate. And actually, not necessarily a billion years ago, it could have snowed a mere 100,000, 200,000 years ago at high obliquity. But what we found is that these changes from monitoring, they're not happening year-round. They're happening in the wintertime when there is CO2 frost on the ground, and that dry ice buffers the temperature of the ground and the atmosphere to about 150 Kelvin. What is that in centigrades? Really cold, way too cold for water. So it's not water that's carving these gullies. It's, it's a dry ice fluidization process that, that carves these. So that kind of kills an idea of water today on Mars. Until then we found these other strange things called recurring slope lineae. It's meant to be descriptive and terrible name for the public, but uh, we wanted this to be a descriptive name that didn't assume we knew what was causing these. And these things are narrow, dark markings on steep slopes. They form, it's first starting to form, they grow, then fade, fade some more, disappear for most of the year. And each year in the summer, this pattern repeats. They're not exactly the same, but over the same slopes. Um, they extend from bedrock outcrops way up here is where they start. Um, they are active in seasons when the peak uh, surface temperatures are greater than about 250 Kelvin, so that's minus 23 centigrade. Still kind of chilly, so they actually get up to the freezing point at times here. Uh, 
We also detected from the spectrometer, uh, from the spectrometer hydrated salts at these sites, uh, which is rare. So this all looks like it's actually seeping water on Mars today. Um, Although, and this is less water than you'd need to carve those much bigger gullies, but still very puzzling. How can this be happening? Um, we actually now think that these probably aren't, it probably isn't seeping water. It's probably granular flow, but that water triggers this activity somehow. It could be just small amounts of water. Another new feature that we've seen are these topographic slumps that are associated with these RSL downslope from them. And, uh, Starts off dark, and it makes a new. This makes a topographic deposit. These RSL just look like albedo markings, and so this is a new slump, much like this old one. That material is removed from up here and deposited down there, and we've we've detected a, a bunch more of these, um, about a dozen of them so far. All right, uh, let's move on to uh, CO2 dry ice sublimation processes now. Uh, further towards the poles, and we see there's the time sequence. This is the same. This is a sand dune defrosting through time. Uh, the, the seasons are divided up into L sub S. That's like uh, areocentric. That's like uh, solar longitude. You just divide up the year into 360 degrees as the sun goes, as you go around the sun. Um, but this shows the various spots and streaks and so forth that form. We have lots of fun monitoring this. Here's one of these sites, and the the, the uh, image, you know, was already happened to be oriented like this, and uh, so Daily Express reported trees found on Mars. <laughs> um, I prefer to reorient the image like this because this is the top of the sand, and these are actually flowing down; they're not sticking up, and and. So these are sand cascades associated with the defrosting. We even see a little puff of, of dust here because this has just happened. Spiders on Mars, okay. Um, David Bowie was right. Uh, these are channels. That, in this case, there's frost inside the channel, so it really stands out in high contrast. But these are channels that flow uphill into a central region. These all go uphill. So what are these things? Well, we see these streaks and spots and then fans forming in the spring at these sites. Um, and so we think it's from uh, carbon dioxide. What happens, you get a thick layer of carbon dioxide ice that's translucent. So in the spring, the sun penetrates through the ice, warms, it, warms the non-ice material, dark, dusty material at the bottom, vaporizes the CO2 gas at the bottom of this ice sheet, builds up pressure, and eventually it erupts through there. And we think it also flows underneath the ice to make these channels before it erupts. And we'd, we've been wondering, are these forming today? Well, recently we actually found some places where we see a sequence in which new channels are forming. So they you know, are still forming today. Okay, polar regions. Uh, this is the south polar residual cap of all uh, CO2 ice. This is the happy face. You see the smile there, and well, a little deranged happy face. But uh, so here's a time step here of about three Mars years. 
And you can see, this is the same scale image. You can see the whole pit enlarged and all these little pits also enlarged. And uh, when this type of activity was first uh, discovered by the uh, previous spacecraft, they thought, oh, the CO2 is being lost to the atmosphere. There must be global warming on Mars. And some websites picked up on this and said, aha, global warming on Earth and Mars, it has to be the sun that's doing it, not people. But what they couldn't see that we can see with, with high rise is that while these things are eroding, these flat areas in here, they're growing up. So it's being moved from place to place, but it's not disappearing. It's not, not global warming on Mars, which wouldn't hurt Mars, frankly, but <laughs> during uh, the summertime of one year, we, it was glowing uh, like this. Uh, all right, so we've imaged also the moons of Mars, Phobos and Deimos. Um, there's lots of interest in possibly uh, exploring these moons as a precursor to sending humans to Mars. All right, and uh, so what's the future of high-rise? Uh, MRO has fuel for another 20 years, uh, but a number of spacecraft systems are getting, getting creaky. Uh, the laser on one of the IMUs, Immersional Measurement Units, is near the end of life. The battery is having problems and we have to do various gymnastics to prolong the lifetime of the battery. We may have to move to a later time of day so that we don't go into eclipse behind Mars as often. Um, High-rise is still working well. We have our problems with the instrument too, so there's no way to predict. We do have fuel for, for many years though, and uh, maybe we'll make another decade, we can hope. So with that, I will take as many questions as you can stand to ask. <laughs> so ask me anything, anything in the solar system. Yes, ma'am. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> you want me to explain this image? Hmm. <laughs> this is um, an image of a sand dune with, with frost on it. And, um, and you get brightness patterns here. And why is it colored like this? <clears throat> we don't actually know. This is a strange image, though. It's very early spring. The sun is low in the sky. The sky is dusty and red. So we think there's some funny photometric issues going on here that, that give it some of this coloring of the bright material. But we don't really know. We don't really understand this one. But this is the top, the slip face of a sand dune. This is downhill. These are downhill flows, uh, not glowing worms. <laughs> yes, up there. Uh, oh, have you joined the company in the orbit? Yes. I'm so sorry. Let me get up. Did everyone find it? They did. I, I finished early. I don't know what happened. I was just making sure all the cookies were here. <laughs> They're here. I'll bring up the lights. Because we're podcasting. I'd like the um, questions also to be heard. Okay. We'll just carry on. Do, do you? Oh, you need a microphone for the questions. Great. Yeah. To my understanding, Mars never had the um, plate tectonics as Earth had. 
even way even way back earlier it's in in its history yet there is quite a bit of igneous rock and there has been volcanism my question is what processes are occurring as far as uh, igneous rock formations on Mars in contrast to Earth and also what are the percentages of the surface that are igneous in contrast to those that are sedimentary rock and evaporites and sand dunes? Okay, I, I only need an hour or two to answer that question. You guys aren't in a hurry, are you? Uh, so Might as just give a class, yeah. <laughs> so uh, whether or not there was ancient plate tectonics on Mars is still a matter of debate. Uh, if it's four billion years old, the evidence is highly disguised, it's hard to say. There might have been some, some early form of plate tectonics that got arrested. It certainly never became the well-developed sort of plate tectonics we see on Earth. Um, and, well, there, there are some of the volcanoes that are somewhat lined up along the margin of the northern, the northern lowlands, so that could have been like an oceanic plate and so forth. But uh, mostly, at least in recent time, no plate tectonics. But there's been lots of volcanism. One theory for why, why volcanoes like Vulcan's Mons are so large is because there's multiple reasons. One reason is that in Hawaii, the plate moves over the hot spot, and so you get a chain of volcanoes. On Mars, it's not moving, so it keeps erupting in the same place and builds a bigger volcano. Also, having a much thicker, stronger lithosphere helps in lower gravity. But uh, most of Mars is basaltic in composition. It's like the oceanic rock we have on, uh, very common on Earth. There are some more evolved, you know, dacitic, rhyolitic rocks in small areas, but not nearly as much as on Earth because it's plate tectonics with subduction and lots of water involved and so forth that makes continental crust, that makes these different compositions. So what percentage of Mars is, you know, igneous compositions versus sedimentary or evaporite? It's mostly volcanic, and even the sedimentary rocks, these are mostly basaltic in composition. It's like ground up basalt, but it's been made into sediment and redeposited by streams or by the wind. And uh, there are evaporites as well that are pretty significant in area um, that have formed from water. So, so Mars has had you know, a rich history of, of water and alteration, but it's not as rich as Earth. Earth is just incredible in terms of its, its history. Is that close enough? <laughs> Question here. In an earlier slide, you showed that uh, there's frost at 30 degrees latitude, and uh, uh, I guess on the southern, uh, at 50 degrees latitude. Where would that be like on Earth? What would that be like if it was on Earth? What latitude are you talking about? So uh, the, the latitude, first of all, the frost is somewhat variable depending on, on slopes. But where it's completely frosted, it's down to about 50 north and south latitudes where you get a, just a complete cover of, of seasonal frost. On poleward facing slopes, it goes to, to lower latitudes. So what's, what's 50 north? Is that, that's Canada or something, right? It's not that. London? London? Yeah. Uh, and I like making the comparison for some of these icy craters. They're down as low as 39 north. That's actually south of Rome. <laughs> so it's not, not the pole. How do you decide like what you do um, since you don't know when it expires? So do you have like other projects and then this is like a secondary project? Or 
with your involvement in high rides or like since you don't know if it's going to go on one decade or two well um, we're we're optimistic and uh, <laughs> but yeah this is a funny business to be in because uh, missions can be short-lived uh, and bad things could happen to make them even more short-lived. They can fail at launch. They can fail when on entry, descent, and landing. You can work for years and get nothing back. Or, you know, we're, we're all in bonus time for MRO. We've had a great mission. Um, and the longer we go, the more complacent we get, which might be a mistake. One of these days, it's not going to be good. But... Um, you know, I, I work on multiple missions, new missions come and go, and uh, um, I'm also a tenured professor. I teach classes, so I'm not worried about myself. People who work for me, though, might, might be more worried. <laughs> but we have lots of projects on this campus, uh, and, you know, when the Phoenix mission ended, we hired some of them. Uh, Osiris Rex hired some of our people. There'll be future projects, and we, we trade people around. Uh, there's a lot going on on this campus, and uh, people have done well for many years. Um, what are your like goals going forward, and uh, that you would like to see uh, get accomplished? Like just the overall high rise and um, future, like missions or anything like that. Right. So. Uh, the goals of MRO were, were uh, very broad in terms of understanding surface processes on Mars, both modern and, and ancient. Uh, another really important objective was to, to find the best future landing sites for all the series of rovers we've had and landers like Phoenix and, and the Curiosity rover and so forth. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the ultimate goal, so driving Mars exploration it's basically two. One is the search for life, and the other is future human exploration. Uh, I love geology and plate tectonics and studying that for its own sake, but those really aren't the, 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 the driving reasons. It's, it's the search for life. And uh, so how did life originate on Earth? This is a burning question that, that uh, people spend their lives studying, and it's, it's hard to figure out because it happened over three billion years ago, and the rock record on, on Earth, three billion, there's very few rocks that old, and they're heavily modified and metamorphosed and so forth. This planet is so active, it's very hard to figure out. Well, Mars and Earth exchanged rocks, especially back in those early days of heavy bombardment. If life formed on one planet, it got transferred to the other. It was probably in both places. And those ancient rocks on Mars are still well-preserved. Those three to four billion year old rocks are still there. They're not heavily altered. So Mars may be the place to go to understand the origin of life on Earth. We have a question here. Could you explain how you decide what colors to give to the various pictures? In other words, are all the blues the same yeah. thing? Or Because right. they're colorized, I, I would assume. Well, it, it, we have three uh, colors on high rise which is a broad blue-green channel, a broad red, trending even to the infrared, and then an infrared channel. So it's not like red, green, green blue of our eyes uh, to begin with. And then, uh, you know, Mars tends to be bland because we're looking through this dusty air. You wouldn't know it because we have such great images. We, process, we get high signals and noise so we can process them and remove that. But what we do is we, many of these images, we just give a min-max stretch from the brightest and darkest Darkest area goes to zero, brightest to 
to white um, in all three channels and stack the infrared and red, the red and green, and blue-green and, and blue. So it's, it's real colors in the sense that it's representative of actual spectral variations on Mars, but it's not what we see with our eyes. Other questions? Oh, over here. What do you think of Elon Musk's efforts to get people on? And how, how high above the surface of this did you, was this, these photos taken? So MRO is at about 300 kilometers 300. altitude. And that's about as low as you can go without too much drag from the atmosphere. Um, and if we had, if we didn't have an atmosphere on Mars, we could go much lower and get even higher resolution. But Elon Musk, great question. So he, he uh, is the founder of SpaceX also the founder of, of Tesla Motors and uh, Solar City and Giant Battery Plant. And he says colonizing Mars is his mission in life. It's uh, plan B for humanity. And if you look at, you know, if you want to colonize Mars, what do you need? You need lots of solar arrays for power. You need automated vehicles, electric vehicles for driving around. You can make the case that all of his companies actually support this goal. So that argument's been made. Uh, so what have they really done so far uh, for Mars? They've mostly just talked about it. Um, they are a company in the business of making money. And so it, it, and if they don't make money, they go out of business. So uh, you know, I'm not expecting you know, him to, to perform any magic here. What he's talking about, though, is colonizing Mars and building a city on Mars, okay? Uh, and, and I think part of this is you talk it up, you get people excited, and then investments come somehow. I'm not quite sure how. <laughs> um, so it's, 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 it's outrageous, but at the same time, he's, they've done some really good things. They've, they've produced a launch vehicle that is much lower in cost than the pre-existing basically a monopoly that the United Launch Association had, and that's helped the whole industry. Uh, they've got, they're working on reusable rockets. That's absolutely needed if you want to do something like, like go to Mars. So they are doing, they're really pushing the envelope in ways that are good for future Mars exploration. And whether they actually send their own missions to Mars and do other things, well, they're, they're talking about it. In fact, Elon Musk is going to tell his latest plan this week. There's a conference in Australia, I think it is. So watch the, the news and see what, we'll see what he says next. It's, it's fun to think about. <laughs> we have a question up here. Yes. Okay, it's just kind of out of curiosity. I remember when Mariner 9 got to Mars. It's like the first month it was there, it couldn't see anything because of a planet-wide dust storm. And I was just curious how much ob observation time you guys have lost for, from that type of thing. Right. Uh, so um, w we saw that in Mariner 9 and um, Fortunately, Mariner 9 was able to wait until the dust cleared and gave us our first global view of Mars. Uh, the Soviet Union sent a, an orbiter to Mars at the same time that was all pre-programmed. It, it got there, it took its images, ended its mission before the dust ever cleared. <laughs> um, so having the ability to change your mind and do things differently is very important. And then we saw more dust storms from Viking and from ground-based and Mars Global Survey, and it seemed to be it seemed to be on a three-year cycle. 
And then that included uh, 2007. So we did get one of these great dust storms from that while MRO was there and uh, couldn't see the surface very well for uh, you know, a, a few weeks, except a few places like the polar cap. And then we expected to see it again three Mars years later, not three Earth years, three Mars years. Didn't happen. Then the next Mars year, again, it didn't happen. So uh, the, we don't really know how to predict these events. But uh, Are the dust storms have to do with seasonal changes on Mars? Like when you go from Martian winter to spring or something? Well, if it, was that, if it was just the seasonal change that triggered them, we should see them every year. And we do see regional storms every year. Uh, but, but you said every three years. Is that every three Earth years or Martian Mars years? years? Mars years. Mars yeah. years, okay. So we do see these regional storms every year, especially in the summertime in the southern hemisphere. Mars has an eccentric orbit, so it's much closer to the sun for part of the year. It warms up more. That drives more convection and activity that raises dust into the atmosphere. And this makes regional storms. And people have different theories. I kind of think that what happens is that Really, once you have a regional storm also, it puts a lot of dust into the upper atmosphere. That cools the surface, and that suppresses further dust storm activity. So I kind of think what happens is, by chance, you get regional storms forming in several places at once and build up dust, you know, synchronized before that dust can suppress further dust storm generation. So it's kind of a chance thing to get several re regional storms forming at once, and then it spreads around to obscure the whole planet. But at the surface, it's really still regional storms. You know, it's not like the whole planet is in storm. It's just it, it, the dust gets into the upper atmosphere, and, and it encircles the planet. Do we, oh, we have another question down here. Oh, I'll grab her, and then you. All right. Oh, I'll be careful. There you go. So my question is pretty simple. Um, so there's a difference with Mars years versus the years here on Earth, right? What's, the, what's one Earth year in Mars years? Right. So uh, an Earth year is 365 days, and a Mars year is 677 days. Or, or what is it? 687. 687. <laughs> so that's a little less than two times uh, the uh, length of an Earth year. And the reason is that it's further from the sun. So uh, throughout the solar system, the planets closest to the sun have the short, go around the fast, have the shortest years. Mercury, it's a few days long and so forth. And Saturn, um, it's 30 years. A year is 30 Earth years. It gets even longer the further away you go. I know how the moon was formed, but I don't get how a rock from Earth gets to Mars, a rock that show signs of life. Yeah, okay. So um, we have meteorites on Earth that are confidently identified as originating from Mars. And uh, that's in particular because there are gases trapped within the rocks that have the exact isotopic composition of the Martian atmosphere measured by first by the Viking landers. And um, so at first it was thought that they couldn't get from Mars to Earth. Once we found out they were, the theorists went back to work. And um, it, it's what happens is that when you have an impact event, you have a surface layer, you have a shock wave that penetrates in the surface, it reflects back, and then that surface layer 
is accelerated, and there's nothing above it, right? So a thin surface can be accelerated at very high velocity. So it has to escape Mars. Uh, it needs to go faster than about five kilometers per second to escape Mars gravity. And then over a million or two years, it may be perturbed into eventually reaching Earth. Now, going from Earth to Mars is more difficult because Earth has a higher gravity, so it has to be accelerated higher. And Earth has an atmosphere that's thicker. And, and, uh, and, and this is not proven that rocks from Earth have gone to Mars. But the theorists think it can happen for the very biggest impacts. Not <laughs> so it's happening today for uh, impacts that are fairly small on, on in relative sense, maybe a few kilometers wide crater. But from Earth to Mars probably only happened from much bigger craters very early in geologic time. Any other <laughs> questions? Oh, we have a couple here. Uh, I wanted to ask you a question about the atmosphere. I've heard that sometimes they have detected cirrus clouds on the planet. And uh, sometimes they've even seen cumulus clouds, very localized in the cumulus field. But uh, can you give me any kind of information on that? OK, so for, for clouds on Mars, um, there, there are very high altitude, thin clouds that are analogous to cirrus. Uh, those are seen. It's, it's cold up there, and, and both CO2 and water can, can make those clouds. They're very thin. Cumulus clouds, that would be interesting because that would, cumulus clouds make rain. <laughs> um, there, there's really, really no proof of cumulus clouds on Mars. There are sometimes very compact clouds that might look like that. And you know, why exactly these, these more compact clouds form, I'm not sure. It's not really my, my area. But they aren't true cumulus clouds that could make it rain on Mars. It hasn't rained for a while there. <laughs> it's worse than Arizona. <laughs> <laughs> so what is the um, different temperature variations on Mars, especially for humans? Right. Well, in the warmest times and places, like I just said, it can get up to uh, you know, above the freezing point, uh, even to, to room temperature. But it's only for a very brief period of time in a brief part of the season. And even in that warmest time of year, it plunges to extremely cold at night. So the temperature variations are greater than on Earth because of less of an atmospheric blanket uh, to, to modulate those temperatures. And it gets very cold. It gets the coldest it gets is really fixed by the CO2 frost point. It's about 150 Kelvin. If it gets colder than that, it just keeps condensing more CO2 out of the atmosphere instead of getting even colder. Um, and 25% and of the atmospheric mass condenses onto the surface. That doesn't happen on Earth. Uh, uh, so that's why the CO2 draw, drives so much activity on Mars. It's actually a lot of massive material that's being condensed and sublimated every year. So the temperatures vary wildly, and it gets occasionally warm. But for the most part, for humans, they need to bundle up. <laughs> Question here. How do you protect high-rise from radiation and micrometeorites? How do I protect high-rise from radiation and micrometeorites? Well, we use a special electronics that are, are more resistant to radiation damage. 
we actually don't consider the Martian environment to be that severe for radiation to electronics. It would be severe to people, but not to electronics. Uh, and, and we design it, uh, and that's not a problem. Micrometeorites haven't been a problem. Um, they, they actually happen very rarely. We see all these new impacts forming, and we know that they're out there. We know they're hitting Mars. But if you just calculate the whole area of space and how tiny the MRO spacecraft is, the chance of getting hit by something significant, it probably gets hit by dust-sized particles. And we'd probably, if we could examine it, we'd see little pits in it. But getting hit by something big enough to damage it is just very unlikely. It's, it's just lots of space in space. Uh, have you seen any evidence of an impact crater similar to the one that wiped out the dinosaur here on Earth? There are impact craters of that size on Mars, you know, 100 to 200 kilometers in diameter. Those have happened in the past on Mars, as they have on Earth and every other planetary body. Um, whether there were dinosaurs on Mars, on the other hand, <laughs> we, we don't know. <laughs> One more question? Okay. Where did all the water come from on Mars, and why is it still there? Okay. So the origin of, wa the origin of water, even on Earth, is still a matter of debate. Was it comets that brought it in? Was it had the primordial dust-gas mixture that trapped enough water and so forth? But somehow, both Earth and Mars had an initial inventory of water. And typically, you get more water as you go further out in the solar system. It's colder. So Mars had a lot of water initially. Um, most, uh, uh, what happened to it? I mean, uh, we see evidence for giant rivers and lakes and even seas on Mars. Uh, they had a lot of water billions of years ago. Uh, so what happened to it? Well, some of it was lost to space. It has lower gravity, lower atmospheric pressure, and it lacks a magnetic field as well. And so the solar wind can strip away the, uh, well, Oxygen and hydrogen can separate. It strips away the hydrogen very easily. Um, but that probably didn't remove most of Mars's water. Instead, most of it probably went underground, and it could still be there. But that's, a, that's an open question. We don't quite know how much is there. All right. I'd like to remind you that our next lecture is two weeks from tonight, on October the 9th. Uh, Professor Michael Chris, who teaches our History of Astronomy course, here at Stewart Observatory, is going to tell us the story how navigators and mariners figured out how to calculate their longitude in the 18th century. So it'll be a historical lesson on how we figured out how to actually navigate using the stars. Um, the telescope is open for your uh, private viewing pleasure. Over, I have uh, punch cookies and infused water uh, in the main lobby. and. Professor McEwen will be over there in a few minutes to sign your books or to answer any other questions you have. So have a pleasant evening. And Ari, too.